seated. In a moment, we will turn together to the book of John. It's on the insert. It's Palm Sunday, so we will look at one of the, one of the four accounts of Jesus' entrance into Jerusalem, that final time before his sacrifice. I want to invite you back tonight. We have the privilege of uh, two of our, I didn't, I'm not going to say they're our oldest, ministry, uh, oldest missionaries. I don't know that for sure, but we've had them for the longest. So the, Dan and Becky Young are the first missionaries we adopted as a church uh, many years ago. Um, they've been ministering on the border uh, for those years. Now they're in McAllen, Texas. They will be on a, at a table on your way out. You can see them there. And then tonight they'll come and present uh, the ministry they are uh, overseeing or part of. So we look forward to that tonight. Today we have come to uh, the beginning of a week of reflection. The church calendar is helpful here in uh, holding us accountable, if you will, to hyper-focus on this most monumental week of Jesus' passive obedience to the Father, laying his life down for us so that we might be saved. It starts with Palm Sunday, and it culminates with Easter Sunday that we look forward to. So we um, come to a passage that accounts or gives the account of his final entrance into Jerusalem. It was during the Passover, and while people were bringing their sacrifices, their annual duty, the sacrifice was coming to Jerusalem. They didn't know the reasons behind his coming or the, all there was behind it, at least not at the moment, but that's what the Lord Jesus was doing and fulfilling. And so we go to the passage in John that speaks of his entrance. It's the shortest of the four accounts, um, and it really focuses uh, on some individuals or groupings of people who are watching this or participating in this. And I would like us, as I read through the passage the first time even, think of the different players or the participants. Um, You have the crowds, and they're different crowds at different points of this text, just a few verses, but it changes. Uh, Who are the onlookers? Um, You have the chief priests and their motives at work. What are they thinking about? Then you have the disciples helping Jesus with this whole endeavor, but they're confused a bit as well. And then the Pharisees, those four groups or entities that are players in this story. Now, the purpose of the story isn't so much to put ourselves in their place. That's a helpful way to consider the text at a deeper level. The purpose of the story is to show the fulfillment of Jesus as the Christ, to do exactly what was uh, forecasted to be done by the Messiah many years before, so that the people then and the generations to follow, us included, could appreciate the perfection of God to bring about salvation through Christ. It's a beautiful uh, story indeed. Now the story begins before the, cha- the verses we're looking at. In chapter 11, that most monumental resurrection of Lazarus, um, second only to Jesus' resurrection, would be the amazing nature of Lazarus' resurrection. Dead four days. He wasn't just raised from the dead. He was raised from decay. Four days in the tomb. And yet Jesus raised him from the dead. So the people in Bethany, a small town just outside of Jerusalem, where many people were staying on their way to Passover, many people saw this, caught word of it, heard of it, and they wanted to see Jesus all the more. They wanted to see Lazarus, this guy who had been dead that many days. So we pick up the story now from Bethany in chapter 12. Please hear as I read God's word. This is John 12, 9 through 19. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, 
whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Let's bow together as I lead us in prayer. Help us, O Lord, to understand and appreciate your holy word, even a passage that may be familiar to us. Please freshen it for us. Impress upon us all that you would have us to learn. Give us special attention to each of the participants in this story and insights that will impact our love for you and our obedience to you as we reflect this week especially on the sacrifice of our Lord Jesus. pray this in Christ's name. Amen. You know that it's true The same event could be viewed several different ways, depending on the perspective of the witness. Uh, The same words could be spoken, but interpreted differently based on the angle or the view of the people who are hearing those words. That's the case in our story. The same event, but these different participants understood it differently. Some years ago, Uh, Before smartphones were as prevalent as they are and texting was so easy, or even email, email was still, it was was pretty prevalent, obviously, this long ago. But usually, if someone wanted to let me know what they thought of the sermon, they would, some would leave a message on the church answering machine. It's not as popular today. I get a quick text or get an email, maybe a phone call, not too many phone calls, mostly text now. I would come in Monday morning and I would listen to the different messages that were there. In 2004, 15 years ago, I was preaching through the book of Malachi. And I came to Malachi 3. Now, if you're familiar with Malachi 3, most congregations are only familiar with it whenever the pastor thinks the church needs to be given more money. Then they preach Malachi 3 about tithing, bring all the tithes into the storehouse. But I was preaching through Malachi, so you can't accuse me of that. And I got to Malachi 3 and I addressed the passage about tithing, but then I... Um, did a bit of an excursus trying to capture some of the wider biblical themes or teaching on stewardship. Um, kind of crown ministry themed, how we're stewards, um, not just about tithing, but about how we view all of our stuff and possessions and giving and so forth. It wasn't, I preached stuff much more blunt since then, but at that point, um, that's what I preached. And so the next morning, I came in and listened to the, the different messages that were on uh, the machine. I don't know if it was machine, probably voicemail at that time, but you know what I'm saying. Someone said, first message, Tony, 
you totally missed the accurate biblical teaching on tithing and giving. Boom, right off the gate, right again. I knew it was going to be a good week, right at the start. It's very disappointing when pastors and preachers don't understand the right biblical view of money. That was the message. Um, and I, I'm saying this uh, sounding woe is me, but this is a, a strong brother in the Lord. Uh, it was fine. They were, just, they were being honest about what they thought, and that was okay. But the very next message, I mean, right after I just picked up my head from, from my self-loathing uh, feeling of being so miserable as a preacher, right away as I hear the next beep, Tony, I want to thank you for your sermon about giving yesterday. I have struggled with a healthy view of money and stuff, and your teaching on Malachi 3 opened the passage to me. I'm very grateful. Two messages from two godly people um, who heard it differently. Uh, now, I could quibble about what one might have heard or didn't hear, but it did remind me of something that's true for us at all times. When we view something or hear something, um, we definitely bring to bear whatever our shaping influence may be of the last week, of the last month, maybe the last year. And so we always have to be careful to see what we're importing when we're trying to interpret something. Um, in this case, it was pretty stark. I could see what was happening. Um, the first person um, who had called had just been part of a church where the church leadership had manipulated um, some things and there was a scandal going on in the church. And they had been, there had been regular messages over the course of a couple years about the need for people to give more, give more, give more. And so they were pretty burned by that experience. And then been here very long and then here I am preaching a sermon about the importance of, of stewardship and generosity and such. So it kind of triggered them in that respect. Um, that's the lens they saw through. So it was difficult for them to maybe step back and to see it for its, its basic teaching rather than being a personal affront. By the way, that's one of the benefits of ex expositional preaching, just to go through the Bible and when it comes up we address it rather than you thinking it's my pet topic at the moment. The second person recently had come into quite a bit of money because of an inheritance and an, abyss, uh, an unexpected business uh, upturn. Um, they were feeling pulled in a very materialistic direction. They, they knew it in their own life and were asking for God to give direction to them about how to handle all this. And then the sermon on Malachi 3 came and then a wider discussion about um, stewardship. So they were ripe for hearing that particular aspect of the message. I say this to you just to, to show or to prove that I know you come here with um, things in your life that shade your perspective in, a, in a one way or the other. We all do. And the preacher's job is to bring us back to the timeless message of the Scripture, no matter what it is that is shaping uh, what you're seeing, that you come back to that core, that kernel. And you know that the kernel of this message is what this event begins. Jesus' road ultimately to Calvary and then to resurrection. So we look at it anticipating in knowing that's what this is about. We see through that lens, so it helps us. What I would like us to do as a bit of an exercise that I think will help is to rather think for a moment what the four different players in the episode, what they're thinking. I like to ask that question of someone when something bad or good happens. I'll say, what were you thinking about this? Like, what was your mindset? And so likewise, if we were to say um, to the crowds and different kinds of crowds, uh, what were you thinking when um, you reacted this way to Jesus with, with palm trees or uh, with your cloaks down. What was in your mind? What was Jesus' significance? Why did you do this? I'd be curious to ask the chief priests why they acted so violently in their minds towards now Lazarus as well. I'd want to ask the disciples who are closest to Jesus. Um, what was in your mind and your thinking at that moment of Jesus' entry into Jerusalem? Finally, I would want to ask the Pharisees. What was your thinking? Why were you so seemingly jealous with the statement you make? Um, they're going after him and not us any longer. 
you know, what is in their mindset that would make them view the entrance of Jesus into Jerusalem the way they did? And by walking through those, I hope that we can be humble enough and challenged enough ourselves to think there might be some ways in which we can emulate those mindsets, but come back to that kernel, that timeless kernel of truth that we believe that this is the entrance of the beginning of Jesus' ministry of passion. Um, He is actively obedient to the Father his whole life, obeying God completely. Now he's passively obeying by laying his life down. That's the significance of the beginning of this week that we think of, beginning with Palm Sunday. Let's begin by looking at the different constituent parts of this story, starting with the crowds. Now, don't get confused because the crowds are mentioned three times in this short passage, and they're not altogether the same crowd every time. First, we're in Bethany, where there are people who didn't necessarily see the the resurrection of Lazarus, but heard about it, and now we're inquiring. Then we go to Jerusalem, and then we see those who had heard the word of what Jesus did in Bethany just a little ways from Jerusalem, and they were waiting to see Jesus come. And then finally, there's a mixture of the two, some who witnessed it and were still talking about it, and others who were observing. So let's look at this uh, close, more closely. Verse 9, we're in Bethany at this point, not yet in Jerusalem. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So there's a curiosity that is at work. They know of Jesus, have heard of miracles, no doubt. These are all Jewish people who are coming, traveling, many of them from afar, to go to Jerusalem for Passover. It's the Passover time. So there's a large crowd of people in a normally small town. Um, But they're there, not far outside of Jerusalem, maybe staying with family or somewhere where they can have lodging for Passover. They hear Jesus is there in this small town, and they hear what he's done. They not only want to see Jesus, they want to see Lazarus. Why? To quiz him a little bit. What was this like for you? Uh, Is it true? Is he really alive? Is this the case? So there's a curiosity that's at work as they view Jesus. There's no indication that they gather Jesus as Messiah, but they know that's the word about him, that he might be. And even what is Messiah for these people, that starts to unfold a little more. That's the first crowd that we're introduced to. Then the next day, as it's time for Jesus to go into Jerusalem, we kind of are introduced to another crowd. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast, so they're in Passover, at Passover in Jerusalem, had heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they're there. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. So they are responding to the prospect of Jesus coming soon with something that was associated with victorious Israeli Jewish kings. Now, it's not that we should understand that they get the prophecies being fulfilled in Jesus as such. Even their view of the prophecy would have been different. How do we know this? Well, Psalm 118 in the text from Zechariah, um, we have record of that being used in other episodes in the history of Israel. The most notable would have been about 200 years before this, when um, the Seleucids were basically occupying Israel and took over the temple. And so Simon Maccabeus of the Maccabean Revolt rose up, brought people in, and took back, basically took back Israel for the Israelites. And he was hailed as a great king, a great liberator. Um, He liberated them from the Seleucids. And so this psalm in that portion of Zechariah were, were said and palm trees were brought out 
in, in palm branches and lay down just the same way. So knowing that, we can get into the minds of the crowds a little more and recognize what were the crowds thinking? What were they interpreting Jesus' is coming to be? I would submit the majority of them most likely thought this could be our social liberator. Um, their most pressing need was difficulty under Roman tyranny, difficult poverty under them. It was a tough time to be alive. Um, the Romans had their hand on a lot of things, uh, but there was an oppressive hand, and the Jews felt especially offended by this. And they wanted liberation, and they saw Jewish Messiah as one who would liberate them socially. Um, they did not think so much in terms of the eternal. They were very tied to the temporal. So the perspective that you gather from the crowds would be one of, free me from my problem right now, and not think about the deeper problem that might be facing them. So we see this even in our own lives as we tend to be temporal-minded. We think, Lord, save me from this particular thing I'm dealing with right now. Please, Lord. And that's okay for a believer to pray that, but this life here and now isn't all that we're about. Um, there's a greater question that needs answering that Christ answers in liberating us from the just desert of our sins. That's the thing that Jesus is coming to fulfill on Palm Sunday. He cares about the matters of day-to-day living, no question. But this is a much bigger liberation he's about. And the crowds are consumed with their particular situation and have a difficult time, perhaps, at least on the large, gathering all that was happening. Verse 13 tells us uh, that response. They took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna. You know what Hosanna means probably by now. Save now. So it's the temporary that they're fixed on maybe at the expense of the eternal for some. Jesus, verse 14, found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. You and I, through the lens of the finished work of Christ, know this fulfills scripture, and it liberates us from sin, Jesus' sacrifice. The crowds probably were thinking more, like, I hope this is the guy that will free us from Rome. And the reason why the crowd, not necessarily the whole of this crowd made up, but the crowd turns against Jesus by the end of the week is because they see he's not going to be able to liberate them. Not in their minds, not the way they were looking for. And so it switches pretty quickly. One last view of the crowd here, verse 17. Um, You see, as there's a commotion about Jesus' coming, um, there were people in the crowd who had witnessed the raising of Lazarus. And so they continue to remind everybody as they're probably debating among themselves, is this the Messiah who will liberate us from Rome? Be our liberator raise Israel to its place of status in the world again. And verse 17 says, the crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. What were they bearing witness about? That he raised Lazarus. It's not saying they bear witness about Christ and their need to trust in him, but rather they're just saying as they debate, we saw him do this. We know he did this. So there's quite a bit of commotion, quite a bit of confusion, a lot of focus on the here and the now. It says in verse 18, the reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they had heard he had done this sign. The perception of the crowds, they wanted a better life and they wanted that better life now. And that can be a tendency for us to get so wrapped up in the temporal that we don't think of what's been won for us in the eternal. When we think in those terms, it impacts how we move in the temporal that eternal question being answered, where we'll spend the vast, vast, vast majority of our existence, that settled in Christ helps us bring to bear 
a better perspective about God's glory on whatever is going on here and now. Addressing those issues, whatever they are, but through the lens of that finished work of Christ for us and what that means eternally. So many benefits come from that way of looking rather than these temporal ways that we see here. Now, let's look at the second entity, if you will, the the chief priests. Just a couple verses, but they're brutal verses. Um, They don't paint the chief priests well, but of course, it's accurate. This is the word of God, and this is completely in alignment with what we know about the chief priests from this era. Verse 10, so the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death. Wait a minute, hold up. Uh, They just heard about Lazarus being raised, and now he's coming, and the people are showing signs of worship towards Jesus. And the chief priest's response is, well, we already know from earlier passages that they had plotted. They were part of the plot to have Jesus killed. Now they're saying, let's kill Lazarus too. How brutal? Why, why such a brutal response? Well, it helps us to understand uh, a little more about the chief priest. That will help us gather verse 10. They made plans to put Lazarus to death as well. Because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. There's your clue. Now, who were the chief priests? They were essentially the spiritual leaders of Israel. They were the pastors of the flock. And in those days, the pastors of the flock performed a mediatorial task. They were a medium between the people and God. They took the sacrifices from the people and brought them to the temple to sacrifice them on behalf of the people. They functioned as a mediator between God and man. And they knew this, and they had lots of influence as a result. They had spiritual power because of it. People depended on the priesthood. Only some people could be priests. So the chief priests enjoyed this and what it brought them. And so the idea that Christ would come and the people would turn to him as though he would be their mediator, at least gathering that might be where he's going with his teaching, he has to be gone is what they're thinking. Um, Not just because of blasphemy, but personally, this would be a huge affront to them and their livelihood and the influence they enjoy, that certain sense of sway they have over people. So this is what's working in their mindset when they see Jesus. We can't just kill Jesus. we got to get rid of Lazarus too. If we get rid of Jesus only, and then you have Lazarus constantly telling about what Jesus did, can you imagine what that will do to undercut us? So you see the chief priests come from a position of loss of power. They don't want to lose power. They don't want to lose their sway over the masses. How does this impact? Well, I think it speaks especially to spiritual leaders, um, pastors for sure. But before I say that much, because that's obvious, what about even as parents? Have you ever thought about how um, our children, uh, we, we devote so much to helping them grow, but sometimes we do it, sometimes, uh, as much for our own sake, that you know they're following what we say and they're looking like we want them to look and they're doing what we would like them to do. And certainly there's some aspect of which parenting calls for these things. But sometimes we get so wrapped up in it that our demand upon them is just so they do it for us. It gives us a certain sense of accomplishment that we've done this thing. We produce this person. When our role as spiritual leaders of our children is not that they like us or that they feel that way, but that they realize that Christ is who their Lord is. And we should want them to be loyal to Jesus and not be so concerned about their loyalty to us or what people think about us in our pressing our children towards this or that thing. Point is, we have great spiritual influence over our children. We should use it to point them to Christ and not make them completely looking at, look, look to us or dependent upon us or thanking us all the time for whatever we do. 
The greatest thanks would be that our children would follow Christ and him alone because we're going to mess up along the way. All spiritual leaders will. But this passage certainly speaks to pastors and elders of churches. Um, There is a definite propensity when you're in a position of influence to like the way it is that people follow you or they like you or they, you know, I get a lot more, a lot more messages that are nice than the ones that say that I messed up on Sunday. And that can go to a person's head. I mean, the more people tell you that you're great, the more you start actually believing the hype of it and it's folly um, because people switch. Um, So you get used to one call and the other and then you try to live in between those and don't think too much of the one or the other. Uh, but spiritual leaders have to beware of their own sinfulness to want people to follow them. When they think they're doing God's work, they're really just building their own kingdom or their own following. And that is clearly on display with the chief priests. And that's a warning to all of us in leadership and even as congregants to be careful not to put someone or some people in such a place. That's the perspective they come from. But of course, we know through the lens we're watching the story unfold This is about the ultimate humility that we've ever seen. Christ himself sacrificing himself for us in an ultimate sense, not just in a temporal sense. Now let's consider the next entity that are introduced in the passage. Just one verse for the disciples, those who were closest to Jesus. And hopefully this is the one that will resonate with you most naturally because we'll give the disciples the benefit of the doubt and say most of them believe. Now I say that hesitantly because it's one of the bigger mysteries of Scripture to me Um, where was the personal faith of the disciples before the resurrection? They're following Jesus. Um, Clearly, God's working in them. They're saying things from time to time that show great understanding about who Jesus is and what he's doing. And then the very next moment, they're saying something that seems like they don't get it at all, like they are thinking too temporally. So it's hard to say. Um, After the resurrection, there's no doubt. I mean, we can see by their actions and by how they start teaching and so forth, they get it at that point completely the fullness of the whole thing. But at that point, in the point we're at in the story, they're still probing a bit. Look at verse 16. His disciples did not understand these things at first. What things? The way the crowd was responding, the things that were happening. His disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. So they didn't get it when they saw it, but later, upon further reflection, further fulfillment, then it made sense to them. So as they're watching it, the text says very clearly, they didn't exactly get what was happening. So we know what they were thinking. They're not sure. There's a bit of confusion. They're wondering. Maybe a lack of trust. You know, they're having trouble trusting. What is this plan Jesus has led us into? The story before with Lazarus, the disciples wanted to get as far away from Jerusalem as they could, and Jesus goes back towards Jerusalem. So they're struggling with trusting him. Think about this in your own life. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered, then they put it together, then they understood. I would suggest to you, normal Christian living is just like this. We don't understand why something's happening at the moment of, but we will understand eventually. And I don't mean to say that you will understand in this life. I know this life seems long to us, but it's not in God's perspective. We'll have a better gathering of all the events that have happened eventually in glory, and we can look forward to that. But many times, maybe most of the time, the events that happen, we cannot interpret 
with particular accuracy because we don't know. But what Jesus is developing in the disciples is trust. He's saying to trust me because the last time I was faithful and the last time before that I was. And so likewise, as we consider the disciples' view of Palm Sunday, they're confused, don't really get it, and they don't get it until after he, after he rises from the dead and he's glorified. It means on his, upon his ascension. Then they put it all, it all makes sense to them. And that's where we pick up in the book of Acts, right? A group of confident individuals who've seen it all, all unfold. But in this passage, they don't really get what's happening right now. And they don't get it until later. So perhaps an encouragement to all of us is recognize it's probably the normal mode of existence that you will not know the particular reasons for why you're dealing with what you're dealing with, whatever it may be. But you will someday, at some point, in that knowledge, that surety, along with all the other ways you know he has been faithful, allows us to trust through those situations that we won't see complete resolution to this side of glory. The disciples, I believe, had a perspective something like this. They were struggling with understanding and trust, but this was all part of God's developing their trust. Finally, let's look at the Pharisees. You're familiar with the Pharisees through um, other passages that we have been through together and maybe in your own reading you've seen them come up over and over again. They're not identical to the chief priests. The Pharisees were a special, um, really a political group. Now when I say political, it's so divided today between what's political and religious and so forth. In this time, I mean, political was also religious because the Jewish people were uh, thought of themselves as the people of God. So those who were politically powerful within the nation, they were also very religiously powerful. And the Pharisees were lawyers. They were experts on the law of God. Um, They were not Levites, priests on the whole of them. So therefore, they didn't have the same kind of spiritual mediatorial role as the chief priest did. But the people saw them as the smart culture drivers. They were the Jewish heritage keepers. They were the traditionalists along with the scribes. Um, They were there to drive Jewish life. And so they wanted to be followed by way of popularity. Um, They were were very noteworthy. They were intimidating. Uh, People looked up to them because of their smarts. And they had a definite influence as well, but it was different than the kind that the chief priests had. So as Jesus comes into Jerusalem and they're watching this, they're seeing the reactions of the people. Beyond what the chief priests were thinking about Jesus saying, I'm the sacrifice, the Pharisees are seeing them go after Christ for his person, who he is, how he's attractive by what he's teaching and doing. And they're recognizing more popularity for him means less for us and all the benefits that come from popularity. It's really not very different age to age. And they want that popularity and they're losing it as he comes. Verse 19, so the Pharisees said to one another, so this is an inner discussion between us, the Pharisees. You see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. So it's first person, you, saying to him, you are gaining nothing. So one Pharisee says to the other, look, you're not doing very well. Now, what they're doing is they're playing off of each other's jealousy. All of them are trying to be the best. But now they look at each other and say, hey, you're not going to be the best anymore because he's here. It's a, a mode of expression or a way of saying that, look, he's taking our popularity And everybody's going after him. It's a bit of hyperbole. It's not to say that every individual in the world, that's never how world is used, especially in the New Testament. It just means something wider than just the Jews. And what was happening in Passover is all the people of the regions, even other countries, were coming to uh, descend upon Jerusalem to offer sacrifice. You remember the Ethiopian traveled 
for Passover. There are other people, proselytes to Judaism from other nations. They were all there. We know that from the day of Pentecost. It happened not too long after. So the Pharisees are noticing all these nationalities, the biggest day in uh, Jewish pride of the year. People coming to, to the great high hill of Jerusalem. And the Pharisees thought that as a bit of praise to themselves for what they had helped maintain and develop in Israel. And here comes Jesus, this, this no-ranking rabbi, and they're falling down before him. They're putting palm branches before him. They're closed down. They're treating him like a king of Israel. If that's happening to him and he's elevating, we're only going down, the Pharisees say. What is the perspective of the Pharisees as it compares to some of the others? Really, it has to do with this striving after the approval of men. They so badly want the approval of men, if they think anyone else shares it, they're not going to get it. And so they strive after uh, anything that would put them in positions of power, and that meant stomping on people on the way up. Certainly, we can find ourselves in a place where we care more about the popularity that we enjoy or the notoriety that we have or how well connected we are and not contemplate what it is Christ may be calling us to, which will certainly be something more humble than what the world ever elevates. And that's, the Pharisees were long gone on that point. Now, some of them obviously came to Christ. You remember the book of Acts? There were some who were Christians who were still struggling with their background in Phariseeism. So it's not that all hope is lost for Pharisees, which, by the way, is great for all of us. Because at heart, we're Pharisees. We want the approval of people. And sometimes we will step on others or we'll lower what they are or who they are to make ourselves feel a little higher. That's something we can definitely gather or be challenged concerning when we consider the Pharisees in this story. The crowds, they had their temporal outlook for social liberation. That was their first consideration. Jesus was here for something greater. The chief priests were bothered by the spiritual influence they would lose because they weren't the mediators between God and man. There's one mediator between God and man, and the man is Christ Jesus. They knew something about Christ was proclaiming that, and they didn't like it. The disciples, they were confused. They didn't understand all the ins and outs of what Jesus had come to do. But by humbly trusting, they eventually grew to understand in more fullness and were incredibly effective by God's Spirit because of that trust and belief in the Pharisees. They wanted the popularity. They wanted the respect from the people that they should get for how smart and learned and expert they were. They strived after the approval of man and missed the magnificence of what Christ was coming to do and accomplish. You and I, brothers and sisters, have the benefit of knowing what Jesus went on to do after this entrance. This whole week coming up is designated as Holy Week. I hope you will take time to consider what Christ did for us in his passive obedience to the Father. The story of Jesus' entrance into Jerusalem sets the stage for his suffering and his sacrifice so that our sins could be forgiven. We'll have a service on Good Friday, kind of capping off the week, considering the crucifixion, the work of Jesus on the cross, going through passages that build us up to that point. It's a perfect time of the year for this reflection. Our perspective is painted differently from the crowds because we have the scriptures. We know that this began his anguish, his anguish at Gethsemane, his arrest. This entrance into Jerusalem set the stage for his trial before the Jewish Sanhedrin, before the mock king Herod, before the Roman governor Pilate. This entrance was the beginning of his torture at the hands of Rome. His death sentence received from Pilate to the delight of the Sanhedrin. His entrance was 
the beginning of his being forced to carry a cross out to the place of his death, even to the point where he needed help to carry it. He was so beleaguered by the point of crucifixion. Soldiers gambling for his clothes in front of him. As awful as it seems, even that is controlled by the hand of God and prophecy. We know that his entrance into Jerusalem um, sees to the point where on the cross he looks at the Apostle John who wrote this text that we're reading and he says to John, take care of my mother in essence when I'm gone. His final words on the cross that he spoke and then bow his head, bowed his head. That all gets its beginnings from him coming into Jerusalem this final time. The darkness in the sky when the wrath of God was poured upon the sun. The spear thrust in his side where blood and water came forth, showing that he was dead already. No need to break his legs, which was another aspect of fulfilled prophecy. His removal from the cross. His burial in the tomb, in a tomb that belonged to a man who bore his own father's name, Joseph. Then, on that glorious third day, Jesus rose from the dead, and we look forward to that culmination celebration in Easter Sunday. That's what we have as benefit. That's what we have as background to know the significance of Palm Sunday. But it's important, too, to consider the others who have been looking at this story as it unfolded. And finally, it's also important for us to not be totally introspective about this or introverted about it as believers. There are people in the world that you have contact with, your neighbors, your friends, your family, your co-workers, who know of the death of Jesus or they know of the story of it. Many of them may believe it's historically true like it is. But what is their perspective? Have you thought about what their angle is on Palm Sunday, on the week of his anguish, his suffering, his death? My challenge to you, to us, is not to make this only a week of introspection, but a week of reflection and sharing with others who must have some perspective. And the opportunity is ripe when so many people are aware of, quote-unquote, Holy Week. I mean, the truth is the only day set apart is the Lord's Day. Holy Week is something we use to describe This is a specially designated time for us to focus on this work of Christ. May all of us find ways, or may God give us ways, to express the timeless core truth of why Jesus came on Palm Sunday, so that he would lay his life down for the forgiveness of your sins and my sins. May that be the message that people gather very clearly through this season of reflection that we as God's people are undergoing. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you are the Holy One, and we worship and adore you for your willingness to go to Jerusalem that final week in order to free us from our sins by your death on the cross. As the hymn says, lo, the good shepherd, for the sheep is offered. The slave hath sinned and the son hath suffered. For our atonement, while we nothing heeded, you, O God, you interceded. Holy Spirit, bring to our remembrance the great work of Jesus this week. Give us opportunity to not just bear witness to the raising of Lazarus, but bear witness to your plan of salvation through Christ. May we bear witness to those who you place in our lives. Give us opportunity to help them have the right perspective on this week, this week of Christ's passion that we're reflecting upon. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let us together.